good to us. You're good to us in many, many different ways. And one of the ways you are so good for us is you gave us your word. And you preserved your word through thousands of years. And your word is still relevant. It is still important. And your word is the only word that brings about salvation in the hearts of the lost. <clears throat> so, Lord, we just ask your blessing on our time this morning and recognize that the attempts of feeble men to bring your word uh, is an exercise in frustration. But, God, it's what you do with your word when it is brought that is glorious. So we depend upon you this morning to do something glorious that glorifies you and you alone. For it's in your precious Son's name we pray, amen. So we're going to start this morning by reading the scripture from last week, not com- not commenting on the scripture from last week, but it helps us maybe set the stage a little bit for this week. So last week we <clears throat> read about the rich young ruler and... Uh, some infants. So Luke 18, 18 through 30 says this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this, and he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Well, last week the scriptures gave us an incredibly strong message concerning what one must do to be saved. As Jesus was teaching these parables, he was teaching these parables because they used extremes. And as a matter of fact, they were unbelievable to most of the people that he was speaking to. They just thought, this guy is just, he's not saying anything relevant because who on earth would ever encounter someone like this or someone like that? But they were missing the point, of course. So he talked about these infants who were the least of these in that culture coming to him and idolatry of the rich young ruler who worshipped his money and idolized his lifestyle more so than... uh, Loving God. And this brings us to the final 12 verses of the 18th chapter of Luke. And this is on your little scripture sheet so you can follow along. 
Hope you're bringing your Bibles, by the way. And taking the twelve, he said to them, this is right after this parable, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front of this parade, so to speak, rebuked him. There's a lot of rebuking going on back then. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. It's an amazing piece of scripture here. For those of you who have had the pleasure of raising children, you know, parents, guardians, aunts, uncles, who have been involved in little children's lives, at one point or another, we all face this issue of I'm going to take you to a doctor or a dentist and because you have a bad tooth and this is not going to go well for you. Now we don't say those things but this is what parents are thinking. I'm going to take my child in to get a shot or two and no matter what I say, this is not going to go well because they're going to experience discomfort or pain. By the way, my apologies to any doctors or dentists who may hear this. But you know what's in store for them. And you know it's the best thing, right? You have a bad tooth or your first tooth cleaning or something here and there. And uh, you think, I, we, we have to do this. It's not really a pleasant experience, but all of us understand, even though we do not relish these moments, how much better it is for them to be cured of their illness than to protect them from the immediate fear and discomfort of the treatment. So, little guys and gals, we love you so much, we're willing to let you experience some pain and discomfort because in the end, that's the best thing for you. Now, the tough thing about these trips is that they are utterly clueless concerning what they are about to experience. But you know exactly what they're about to experience. Why? Because we've experienced it. 
They just cannot fathom somebody taking a drill that is turning at 9 million RPMs and pressing it against an already sore tooth while they are simultaneously piping in freezing cold water onto the nerve. Some of you are going, ah. It's beyond them. Now, who among us have taken the following approach with our young children when facing an ER run or a bad tooth? How many of us have said, okay, now let me tell you what is going to happen next when we get there, okay? You're talking to your little four-year-old or your five-year-old. When we get there, some stranger is going to plop you into a recliner and they're going to take out a needle and shove it into your gums probably several times. After a few minutes, they're going to put on a mask so you can't see their face. And they're going to get right down in front of you and they're going to have a little light on it and it's going to blind you. And they're going to take the equivalent of a DeWalt super drill and bear it on, down onto this sore tooth, they're going to tell you that you will feel some <clears throat> pressure. Lies. And you do feel pressure, coupled with pain. Especially if you have a resistance to Novocaine. And some do. Now, dentists don't believe you do. They don't believe you have a resistance to Novocaine. So they're just going... <sighs> On top of it all, they'll tell you that it is really important that you do not move during this minor procedure because the implication is that this thing that's traveling at 9 million RPMs might slip and go through your cheek. I've never told my children that on the way to the dentist. What we as parents and guardians do is we hope for the best and we prepare for the worst. I have met so many adults who had an exceptionally bad experience in the dental chair. And you know why this is so weird. I mean, the reason this bothers us is it's in our mouth. And it's all very sensitive in there. So I feel badly for dentists. I've always had good dentists. I've been very fortunate. But we just don't want to tell our children. It wouldn't even make sense to tell our children those things. The truth is that these visits are part of growing up. These are the things that protect us from deadly infections and simultaneously teach us how to deal with some pain and fear and still soldier on in life. These are opportunities to teach our kiddos that life is not always painless and that we cannot protect them from everything that life may throw at them. We just can't do it. But I will say this, there is nothing worse than hearing your child cry in pain and fear and being helpless to intervene and rescue them. Now, we know they're going to come out on the other end, okay? This morning, we're going to study three things. Jesus predicts the cross. The blind leading the blessed. And how we are called to salvation. So we have Jesus, and he's completed his teaching from the parable. He's on his way to the cross, has resolutely set his eyes on Calvary, and we are witnessing his final journey to Jerusalem.
He is concluding three years of ministry that began with a miracle in Canaan at a wedding and will conclude with restoring the sight of a blind beggar. These are the bookends of Christ's miraculous time on earth. But before he performs the final miracle of healing, we read the following. Luke 18.31, And taking the twelve. So he was in a group where there were Pharisees. There were just people who were observing. His apostles were there. He kind of had an entourage with him at that point. And we read this, And taking the twelve. He said, This is for you twelve. And he takes the twelve. And he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, and he's talking to these twelve, he says, do I, have, do I have your attention? After flogging the Son of Man, they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. This is not the only time Jesus has ta- had talked about his death. In Mark 8, 31 says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Again with the rebuking. Began to rebuke God. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. That had to hurt. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can I ask each one of us today, what are we setting our minds upon? This world is very demanding. Life is very demanding. And I understand that. And there's no rebuking for me on this. But he asked Peter, and he made an incredibly important statement. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on the treasures in heaven. You are setting your mind on the treasures that are here. He might say that to us. Where are your treasures? We have a similar account in Matthew 16, verse 21. says this, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised, and Peter took him aside in the same account and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Matthew seventeen twenty two. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests, scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. who will be mocked, flogged, crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And this one right here is well special. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him. With her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Okay, so Jesus has just said the Son of Man is going to be turned over. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be, he's going to be tortured. He's going to be flogged. And then he's going to die. They're going to kill him. 
He's going to raise. He's going to rise again on the third day. And Zebedee's mother comes and kneels at his feet. Says, "I have something to ask you." He said, "Or what do you want?" Same thing. He asked the blind man, "What do you want?" Can I ask you what you want from God? What do you want? Are you sure you want what you want? That's what he asked her. Are you sure this is what you want? He said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. I struggle with prayer in a number of areas, just so you know. Um, I, you know, I read in being a pastor 101 to never admit you struggle with prayer. I struggle with prayer in a number of areas. Number one, it's rushed all the time. It's, it's rushed prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't occasionally slow down and say, wait, this is not something I'm going to do before I do something else. This is just something I'm going to do. And there are other times when I have so many things in this little, I, you know, my head's not, I mean, there's not a lot of stuff in here, but there's a lot of thoughts in here, right? One after another, after another. Church, building, sermon, music, leadership. What are we doing next? Family. Hurts, joys. So not only is it rushed, it's confused. My prayers are sometimes confused. And so then, Lord, can you just give us a one-story building where there's room to meet? You have no idea what you're asking. Lord, let us know where we are to go. See, when, when our prayers are rushed and not organized, I think we pray for things that God says, Are you sure you want that? Are you sure you want that? You have no idea what you're asking. And I have to confess most of the time, Yes, that's correct. I have no idea what I'm asking. Because I've always asked for these same things in the same ways. How about you? We see through these scriptures that Jesus was very honest and bold with them concerning his mission. And he told them what they should expect to see. He didn't say, now listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to have a little bump in the road there. Okay, but I'm with you. It's okay, Dad. Earthly Daddy. He says no. He was extremely honest with them. Luke 18.34, but they understood none of these things. As brutally honest as Jesus was, they missed it. We might wonder, how could they have missed it? We found out why they missed it in the very next sentence. 
This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Well, that doesn't seem fair. If we are not careful, we can be very indignant with these common men for not getting it, and yet we have the entire gospel laid out before us in Scripture, and we can still miss the point. And we might say, on the contrary, I do get the gospel. I know the scriptures concerning salvation and service. I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And my question for you is this. What have you sacrificed lately for Christ? I mean, if you really get the gospel, if you really get the scriptures and you're really saved, you're really redeemed, what have you sacrificed? Are you content to be what you have always been? Has God not asked anything of you lately that has been challenging? Then I'm saying you're not hearing him, perhaps. Perhaps he knows that he can't ask anything of us. Maybe he is done asking. Maybe it is your turn to ask. So we see here in the first part of the scripture, Jesus is predicting the cross, his death and resurrection. Second thing we're going to look, we're going to look at is the blind leading the blessed. <clears throat> we need to set the stage a bit for this. Christ's final miracle that dealt with people was this miracle. So in these many weeks that we have been in the book of Luke, we have witnessed many things. One of the things we have witnessed is the growing popularity of Jesus with the common people as he traveled from town to town. He was so popular that people left their homes and followed him. So he has an entourage. Now, an entourage is probably a little bit sophisticated for this. He has people that are following him because he has captured their imagination. Why did they follow him? Simon Peter answered that question in John 6.66. Now, that's a weird scripture, isn't it? For all of you who are superstitious, don't read that scripture, 6.66. After after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked. Jesus finally said, look, you you have to choose. And many of them walked away. The disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 1 and 2 says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Peter said, where else are we to go? Other people were following me because they saw the signs that he was doing. So here's the point. Jesus was going from town to town, ministering in many, many, many people, thousands of people, thousands of miracles. And how do we know there were so many? John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do not believe that Jesus only did the miracles you read about in the Scriptures. 
There were so many things that he did, the world could not contain the books. He was busy. So the crowd that was following Jesus by this time was quite possibly hundreds, probably thousands. They had walked during this final portion of Christ's earthly journey south from Galilee. They came upon Samaria. And you know that the, the Jews don't want to go in Samaria. So they crossed over to the Jordan River to the east. They walked past Samaria. And they got past Samaria and they crossed back over the Jordan River to the west. And as they crossed back over to the Jordan River in the west, they entered a very familiar town, Jericho. So let's set the stage. Hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people, walking from Galilee, and they get to Samaria and the Jordan River, and they come on down the Jordan River, and they walk back over into Jericho. Now, if there are hundreds of people walking, it is an unusual sight, especially if they're walking together. Many of them had made some choices. This Jesus is going to be the liberator from Rome. Now think about this. If you've been looking for the liberator from Rome, and this Jesus guy turns up, and in three years he does so many miracles you can, cannot contain them all in books. And some people are saying, I think he is the one. That would be a pretty good guy to choose. Someone that can do miracles. Who could be a better king? Not only was this parade taking place with all of these things, all of these, all of these anxieties and this excitement, but they were traveling to Passover. A traditionally exciting time for the Jews. It just seemed like the stars were in alignment. They were hoping for a political coup. What better time than Passover? Celebrating when God had freed them from Egypt. And what better place than Jerusalem to start this resurrection? So this excited, thundering crowd of people entered Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. And as they began to exit the city... They encounter, actually they didn't encounter, they didn't see him, but they encountered a blind beggar seated on the ground and doing the only thing he could do. He was begging. Luke chapter 35 and verse, uh, sorry, chapter 18 verse 35 says this, as they draw, as he draw new to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now in Mark, we have a little bit more of a detail And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. He knew him. And when he heard, let me rephrase that. The Bible identifies him individually. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son 
of David, have mercy on me. Back to Luke, verse 39. And those who were in front of him, what? Rebuked him. Telling him to be silent. So the lieutenants of the parade decided that he was unworthy of Christ's attention and rebuked him. A word about the prejudices in that culture. There were many, 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 thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were blind. And there were reasons for that. There were um, STDs all over the place. So when these babies would come through the birth canal, many times they were born blind. The culture itself was not, did not lean toward mercy and grace of blind people. Sand, diseases, no cure, cataracts, it's a small surgery for us, they were blind. So the only people that were beneath the tax collector were blind beggars. They saw no value in them. So Kim and I occasionally go to Chicago. And um, you get down into the city and a little bit on the outskirts even if you're driving and almost every stoplight, that's an exaggeration, at many of the stoplights, there are men with Home Depot bucket things, you know, and they're standing on the median. And when that light turns red and all these cars have to come to a stop, they just walk down the median begging. And um, I get irritated with that after a while. And one of the reasons is because I've never had to beg. Then the other day, and by the way, this is not any great revelation for me. Uh, this is just something I should have thought of anyway. But I, I started thinking about this, and I thought, if, if, if you're unemployable for whatever reason, whether it's the law or whatever, whatever reason, so you cannot work, what are you left with? Begging. See, we can't relate to that, Right? So the blind beggars were beneath the tax collectors. Many of them thought they were blind because it was a punishment from God for the sin they had committed. Sound familiar today even? So why would the leaders of this anointed movement rebuke him? And what was it about this blind man that caught Christ's attention? Jericho. Blind man sitting by the road, begging. Hundreds of people are walking by. I don't believe that Jesus was the first one. He may have been. I have no way of knowing that. Maybe even a thousand people. It's like cattle moving through the street of Jericho. And this blind man is sitting on the road. And what was it that caught Christ's attention? Well, this beggar, in verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. All he was doing was hearing it, probably smelling it and feeling it, but he couldn't see who was in that parade. 
He had no idea why there were so many people marching past him. Maybe something happened. He couldn't see anything. All he knew was that something unusual was happening and it involved a lot of people. So he asked, what in the world is going on? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. By the way, this is how you're identified. Tom of Marion. Tom of Amherst. That's how they... Bart means son of Tamias. So the beggar was son, Bartimus, Bart, whatever that is, son of Tamiah. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Read. Read that scripture. What does it really say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now get this. When Jesus heard that, he stopped the march. And he commanded him to be brought to him. This blind beggar, who was lower than the tax collectors, calling Jesus by his messianic name, Son of David. And that stopped Jesus in his tracks. What did the parade lieutenant say? Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't get it. And this beggar says, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of David. This was a name that attached Jesus to the family of David as the one who would inherit, inherit his throne. Jesus stopped in his tracks and called for the man to be brought to him. And then Jesus asked him this very simple question. What do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I was watching someone do a sermon on this scripture this week on YouTube. And they said, it made a very, very good point. said, you know, of all the, of all the diseases, of all the things, of all, all the things you could heal, to heal someone's sight is undeniable. Because they don't see... And then they see. Lord, heal my lower back pain. That's, a, that's fine. But I don't know if you really had back pain. If I'm a skeptic, I'm going, oh, well, you know. Jesus healed blind people a lot. It was an immediate testimony to his power. We find another account of this same event in Mark with a little more detail. Jesus uh, stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. 
And throwing off his cloak, he shed all that he owned in the world by th- right then. He sprang up and came to Jesus. Well, did they lead him to Jesus? He couldn't see Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. His response was very simple and straightforward. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Not leave all that you have and follow me. Isn't that what he said to the rich young ruler? Leave all that you have and follow me. He didn't even tell this guy to follow him. He didn't say, leave all that you have. He says, get up and go your way. What was the beggar's response? He immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So here's the picture I believe God wants us to get. There have been 12 men chosen by the Son of God to follow Him and receive unparalleled attention from Jesus Christ. 12 men. One of them was a devil. Not the devil. He was a devil. They have been under the authority and teaching of God Himself on this particular day, well into the final year of Jesus' earthly life. Jesus passes by a blind beggar sitting along the road in Jericho and stops in his tracks because this beggar calls him by his messianic title, Son of David. You know, when you pray to receive Jesus Christ, He stops the parade. And He saves you. And that's for the second Jesus realized that this blind beggar understood and acknowledged who He was. Jesus immediately ordered this man to be brought to Him. May I emphasize this one more time? He was blind and there were no cell phones or electronic devices from which he could learn anything about Jesus of Nazareth. So how did he know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God? There's only one answer. God the Father revealed this to this man. I'm going to remind you of a scripture in Luke 18, 31. It says, But taking the twelve, he said to him, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be killed. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. The truth was hidden from the twelve apostles by God. And then I want to take you to Matthew 16 as we close today. And it says this. Jesus was always very careful to glorify His Father, by the way. And Matthew 16, beginning in the first and verse 13, says this. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Who revealed this to Bartimaeus? I believe it was the Father in heaven. 
Jesus proclaimed, there is no one who can come to him but those who the Father has called. Now, what about the others? They were the blessed. These 12 were the blessed. And we know they got saved. I'm not sure when they got saved. But we know they got saved. And if anyone would say, which is the blessed? The blind beggar or these 12 that have walked with God for three years? He would say, well, these 12 who have walked with God for three years and the thousands that are following him because they've seen his miracles and they must believe because they're following him. And yet this is what we find. The blind beggar was already leading the blessed because he understood who Jesus really was even before Jesus spoke with him. And he said, get up and go your way. And he got up and he followed Jesus. It takes an act of God the Father in the heart of the unsaved for the unsaved to receive salvation through Jesus Christ so the unsaved can be reconciled to God the Father. that sound confusing? It takes an act of God the Father to save you so that you can be saved to the salvation of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God the Father who's already saved you. Hard to understand? Yes. It's by faith. How will you know if God the Father is working in your heart? Well, one way you will know is if He has granted you the incredible honor of hearing the gospel of His Son. Not everybody hears the gospel, you guys. We hear it over and over and over and over again. Because it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that the scales of blindness can fall from your eyes. Just like the beggar's Scales fell. And you can see that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. You know, taking our little guys and gals to a doctor or to a dentist, we're trying to shield them from from their anxiety. And of course, when we see our little guys and gals in pain or scared to death. We want to jump in and save them from those things. But we can't. Can I remind you that God the Father told His Son, this is what your mission is. And from the beginning of what we would call time and before, Jesus knew his mission. And here's the difference. Jesus carried out that mission. And God could have intervened and did not. For who? Insert your name here. Because Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He was born of a virgin. This all takes faith. He grew up to be a really good carpenter. As far as we know, his dad died pretty early. Some of us can relate to that. 
and at around 30 years old, he was christened into the ministry with a baptism in the Jordan. And for three years, he stunned everyone he met. And he was faithful. And the whole time he began his ministry, he had his eyes on the cross. And he was working his way to the cross. Where he was crucified. And he died. And then they buried him in a tomb. And three days later, he was gone. Then for 40 days, he met with his disciples and others. Came back to life. At the end of those 40 days... His father called him home. And all the disciples were doing this. He goes, why are you looking up there? And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And for those who have received Christ Jesus, every prayer you pray goes through the hands of Jesus Christ and into the ears of God the Father. And he makes him appropriate in that process. Guess what, Tom? You're rushed. You're anxious. You're unorganized in your prayers. You don't pray just to pray. You pray because there's something else to do. And my son takes all those rushed and confused prayers and he makes them appropriate and gives them to his father. It's pretty amazing. If you want to know if you're one of the chosen, receive Jesus now. And you're you're one of the chosen. What do you have to do to receive Jesus now? Confess all these things that we've talked about today. And then you simply pray, Jesus, I receive you now. That's all it is. And yet, it's everything.